Welcome to Life in the Pit, a podcast about the lives and adventures of instrumentalists within the wonderful world of musical theater. And now, here is your host, David Lane. And hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 40 of Life in the Pit. I've received a lot of positive feedback about our past two episodes, episodes 38 and 39, uh, which dealt with keyboard programming. And I just want to say thank you to all of those who have offered feedback. I want to thank my guest, John, uh, and just all of my past guests who have just continued to make this show really fun for me, just talking to all of these, uh, all of these different people in uh, this very specialized line of work that actually does span the globe. Just today I received a message from a listener who is from Ireland, and it's just great to know that people all around the world have either this experience in playing for theater or at least an appreciation of the art. Before we get into today's episode, just want to remind you, um, if you're on Apple Podcasts, uh, any any kind of feedback that you can leave in the way of like a five-star rating or review is much appreciated. Of course, sharing these episodes, that is a big help. And also, you can visit the website for this page, which is davidlanemusic.com slash podcast. You can find all of the episodes there. Uh, you can also leave feedback through the comment section. And if you're feeling so inclined, you can also leave a donation. Uh, at this point, that is the only support for this show. So anything you're inclined to give is much appreciated, but again, not expected. Okay, if you've listened to several episodes, there's one thing I've tried to make clear about the purpose of this show. This, this is not a show about Broadway. That is something I've made clear. This is a show about musical theater in general. And I'm just as interested in the process that goes for, uh, for musicians who play for schools, who play for community theater, who play for all of the states in America and play for all of the countries in the world. But of course, I am also very interested in Broadway and what goes on there. And, and I've, I have had some feedback before, David, we, we appreciate this. Uh, thank you for, for just having a podcast that, that talks about pit musicians, but we sure would like to hear some more Broadway stories and my previous episode with Aaron Gandy has been the only one that has talked about any stories directly on Broadway. But we are going to be having some Broadway guests coming up, starting with our guest today. I am talking to Andrea Newman. She plays trombone, and she has played in the following Broadway shows. She has played in Aladdin, The King and I, Amelie, and also Fiddler on the Roof, including a separate version of Fiddler on the Roof that was in, in Yiddish. Um, for a lot of these shows, she's been a substitute. We're going to talk about what that's like to be a substitute for a Broadway show, and also the, the honor and pleasure that she's had to actually open a Broadway show. One thing I really like about our conversation, besides just talking about getting to New York, getting work, um, Andrea is very candid about one of her failures, one of um, something that cost her a job on a show. And uh, 
it's it's a great learning experience for her, and I think it's a great learning experience for for all of us. We also talk about some of the things that Andrea does to have a full time career in New York when you know she isn't always in a pit. There's there's a lot of downtime here and there, and she has just a tremendous list of credits, including the Westchester Symphonic Orchestra, the Empire Band, Brooklyn Orchestra. She played on Adele's NYC tour, the American Symphony Orchestra, Cecilia Coleman Big Band, and quite a bit more. She's also worked for many years as a bartender at Tavern on the Green in Central Park. Now, I do have a technical note. While I really think the content on this episode is really great, uh, it's probably not the best recorded conversation that I've had. We started off with one mic and, uh, from Andrea's end, and then we switched to a different mic in the middle of the show. And it's just, you know, again, this is not recorded in a, in a studio. It's recorded over a Zoom call. And sometimes uh, I look out with good sound quality. Other times uh, we just do what we can. Uh, but it's it's authentic. It's me and Andrea having a conversation. And without further delay, here is my conversation with Andrea Newman. So, Andrea, you come to us from New York, right? Well, um, I've worked in New York since I've gotten here, but uh, I also had two big dogs when I got here. And mm-hmm. after the relationship went sour that I moved here for, um, Nobody's really going to rent to a single girl with two 90-pound dogs. Mm. So then the opportunities were, uh, and especially for the space that's needed. And uh, so I started looking over in Jersey. And it's it's really nice to go somewhere to sleep and to kind of decompress. And I, uh, so yeah, I live right across the water. In fact, I suppose you can't see, but um, it's New York's right out the window. And so I live in Weehawken, which is nine minutes away a nine minute drive into port authority so it's closer than some boroughs but it's still quote unquote uh jersey i call it new york minus right i'm not sure i guess is it uh is hoboken really close by hoboken so hoboken is uh at the bottom of, on the river and weehawken is right next to it and above okay so yeah same thing okay nice yeah uh the first time i went to new york you know, I'd been to very few states, and I, I thought, well, I mean, New Jersey's right over there. So I hopped on a ferry, went over to Hoboken, found Frank Sinatra's birthplace, and took a picture and had a lunch in a, in a deli, and came back. <laughs> Great. Did you check out the uh, Aaron Burr and uh, Hamilton the duel? Uh, no, I don't know. If, I don't know if I did. <laughs> I probably yeah. didn't. You know, uh, you know, Hamilton was it was on Broadway at the time. And, and, and it was kind of funny because I had a hotel. It was right across from the theater. And, you know, you could mm-hmm. see all the people lined up outside the stage door every single night. <laughs> How I miss it. How I miss it. Okay. So you, you live in New Jersey. You work in New York. Uh, but everyone comes from somewhere. Where did, you, where did you grow up? So I'll try to condense this as much as I can. Um, I'm, my entire family is from Germany. And... Um, my sister got sick in the 80s. She was one of the first child cases with lupus, and they didn't know what much to do about that or how to handle that. And then in 83, UCLA had a, a lupus breakthrough, and so my father was an exchange pilot from the German Air Force to the American Air Force. Then we stayed in New Mexico, which is, I guess, where I got my start with music, and we stayed in New Mexico 
um, until my parents had to go back. Then I was supposed to go back with them. My sister continued staying on a student visa Mm -hmm. and I was supposed to go back and just relive in Germany, so to speak. And, uh, but then I started getting scholarships to go to school and then they left us here basically. And then it started on a student visa. At some point I got a job playing in a symphony in Mexico and then I married somebody and then came back out legal. That didn't go so well that I met a trumpet player who needed to go to New York to play trumpet. And then I moved up here with him. Okay. For a bonus feature, we'll, we'll have a Venn diagram. (laughs) (laughs) I know, that flow chart. Yes. Uh Very nice. So, uh, so New Mexico is where I got, uh, where I got my start in music. And it was primarily, uh, because there wasn't a lot to do. Um, there was band, choir or sports. Unfortunately, I'm not very sports ball equipped in, (laughs) in, coordination whatnot right. and so and i also couldn't speak english very well so i was like go make friends go do something and so i was like cool bands and uh, then why the trombone because i was a little unfortunate I, it was just I was, I was odd because uh being in a small town and being foreign so uh it's i, I feel like after I got my ed- education degree also, I noticed that band directors, when there's an instrument drive, you know, all boys want to play drums or sax and so on, and girls want to play flutes. And so y- you still need a- some people to cover tuba, euphonium, right. trombone. And there happens to be nobody sitting in the trombone se- section at the time. They're like, well, go sit over there. And yeah. I did. And there were some others. I think we had like maybe five at the beginning. And then I liked it. And, um, and then I, about three years later is when I got, it was like all district auditions and I, I scored really well. And from then on, I kind of caught fire and I didn't really want to do much else. I went to college and I wanted to be an interpreter and I didn't really leave the music building. So then I changed my major and then it's been music ever since. Great. I I just have to say, if, if I didn't know already that you were originally from Germany, I would not have been able to tell that you are not a native that you're not native here it's like you, you have very natural accent so that is uh that's been a uh, saving grace in some ways i wish that now for for whatever identity i'd like to maintain i wish i did have somewhat of an accent but yeah. everything else my functionality culture it's 100 percent german uh it's still my first language so but but this is it's nice to go under the radar sometimes yeah well it's kind of interesting one of my uh one film i love is the original murder on the orient express uh with and it has ingrid bergman in it and she has to have an accent for that role and she says in the bonus features she'd lost it she had lost her uh you know her native accent and she had to try to get it back and it was harder than she thought (laughs) it's uh, i feel like uh especially with German, is I think you can mimic the sounds, especially when you're an actor or musician, uh, because ears are so much of what we do. But it's the sentence structure that we no longer translate and the different words. And that's kind of where that comes from or where somebody can really tell whether you're faking it. So Right. Okay, good. So, um, So you changed your major to music. And what brought you to New York? So uh, I was uh, teaching about 90 lessons a week in Dallas, Texas. And that was after getting my master's there and then uh, being married there. And then we split up and I started dating a trumpet player that was 
uh, freshly out of school and he wanted to go to New York to play. We really hit it off. We were very whimsical and very much in love. And he's like, hey, would you want to come with me? I was like, hmm, well, sure. I can <laughs> do whatever. And so we did long distance for a year. And then I packed up and went to New York. Right. And not with the intention of of being able to play or it wasn't my focus. I didn't, you know, I didn't come out here to do that. But in end effect, I stayed because of it. So that was a definite bonus. Wow. Uh, I, I have to, I do have to ask one question real quick. You, you said 90, 90 lessons. That is, uh, that's a, that's impressive. What was that all trombone? Uh, trombone, tuba, euphonium, bass trombone. Okay. And so Texas is just this behemoth of music involvement and uh, the school supported because it has such a cult following of football, mm-hmm. but the football programs must have a great band to go on during their awesome football games. So they pump a lot of money into the band program. And then of course, everybody wants to be in that. And then you have these great musicians because then uh, the band directors get all those kids and get them for concert season. And so it ends up, and with the support of parents and school schools, you can go at seven o'clock in the morning, teach your first lesson, every band period, which they happen to line up beautifully from one school to the next. Uh, you can have two students. So basically it's just bang, 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 bang. And then however late you want to go. Nice. Uh, so what year was it that you moved to New York? I moved to New York in 2010, June. I left for New York, June 10th, 2010, and got here on the 13th. Okay. Did you go straight to theater gigs, or did you do other kinds of things while you were here? Uh, I mean, it was, for me, that was always the be-all, end-all, because I've, I believe I was in 10th grade when I, when I saw my first musical, and that was Phantom of the Opera and Cats and Starlight Express, all three in Hamburg with my family, and I was just mesmerized the music the singing and I love to sing and so that to me was uh, pretty much out of reach in my mind Mm -hmm. and so whenever I got here uh due to some friendships people that had previously moved to New York they they started inviting me to rehearsals or sending me as a sub of a sub to a rehearsal and all three rehearsals and then you start networking then you start hanging out with people and then you start playing together and then you play off, you know, off site in a rehearsal. And then slowly but surely, there's one gentleman in particular, um, Bob Sutman, who's amazing in his own right. Um, he, I think he's the first one that kind of said, Hey, uh, somebody at Aladdin needs a sub. And can you do this? It's very, 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 very short notice. And to me, I was like, Yes. Mm-hmm. It, it's the same situation that people talk about in New York. It's like somebody calls you, hi, can you? And as soon as whatever they say afterwards, the answer is always yes. Mm-hmm. Hang up, get the gig, and then you make sure that you just figure it out how to do it by then. Right. And um, yeah, so on a Saturday in April of 2015, I went in to watch the book and I did my due diligence and did, made recordings and videos and uh, all my all my notes, and then I had two days. So uh, Sunday, Sunday and Monday, and then Tuesday night was the show. Mm-hmm. And very nervous, but going in there, heightened senses, 
and it went well. And uh, and that's kind of where it got my start. And I never wanted to look back. I love commercial stuff. I love actually. I mean, any playing. Right. But pit stuff is pretty special. Right. So yeah. Now, did you have any pit experience in other theaters before that? In uh, major ones, no. And definitely not in New York. Right. Um, it, in New York, it was a lot of high school productions or um, like off-Broadway stuff, um, smaller theaters. And then uh, before that, in Dallas, I would play musicals, uh, whether it's uh, summer musicals or for different private schools that have these, uh, that have the funding and support to put on really great productions along with, yeah, you know, teaching kids set design and kind of like LaGuardia high school setup. Right. And um, so I think my very first musical was then back in Las Cruces when I was getting my undergrad in New Mexico. Um, and I believe it was Gypsy. Okay. And the stress of changing out mutes and, and just being excited and listening and being able to watch it and, Yep. Yeah. I, I just I just wanted to see because uh, I was just imagining a scenario where you're you're subbing for Aladdin for a Broadway show and that's your first time in a pit and I'm like the, it's it's there's a little bit of stress. I don't care what production it is. It can be for a high school. It can be for community theater. As I but but I know that the the standards on Broadway, of course, uh, you know, are pretty high. So that's going to be its own stress. Um so your first, yeah. So your first show was Aladdin that April mm-hmm. as a sub. So, what happens after that? Um, it, it, to piggyback off of what you were saying, yeah. Um, when you look around in the pit and you're like, I know who that guy is, or Wow, I know this person's name, but how am I sitting in the same place as them? And then uh, you know, there, there's a lot of uh, not necessarily hero worship, but you're just, you, you feel very empowered and very strong and very, oh my gosh, I better not screw this up uh, right. to be in the presence of these great musicians that kind of kick back and have a good time and laugh, but then absolutely nail the parts and, and great. Mm-hmm. And so, um, let's see. So after Aladdin, um, and then I was asked back um, and then I was designated and uh, shortly after that, um, and, and Gary in Atlanta, he doesn't take off much. So his sub list is actually very small. And his primary sub, I believe, has taken an interim position in, I want to say Pittsburgh. And um, so, yes, yeah, so, so then he utilized me. And then um, then the king and I came up, I believe. Yes. And so another colleague, another friend, he was in there. And so it's like, would you like to start subbing there? And of course. And so, you know, then I'm like, oh yeah, I can do this. And I'm going to do everything the same and, and try to prepare the same way. Now at this time though, I also had a few other jobs, uh, teaching privately, teaching for a school. And I was also bartending. Right. And to get all of those things, to keep those plates spinning, I should have known that something had to adjust. Right. And um, but uh, King and I went well, and then uh, right around the same time, uh, so I believe this is about May June, and uh, and another colleague, Bruce Adam, he'd asked me to prep for American in Paris, mm. and I listened to it and I thought, wow, it's great, and. Then when I watched the show, I was like, man, 
it's going to be hard right. and very, very isolated uh, entrances and very uh, sensitive playing. And um, yeah, so I was basically prepping two shows at the same time mm. with maybe a week apart of going in for the first time. And while The King and I, the book was probably a little bit easier or it connected with me more, I right. should say. Um, American Prayers was definitely harder. And I remember calling maybe a day or two before and saying, yeah, I don't know if I can do this. And and then, uh, and there were some other factors like the same day that, uh, the same day of my first show at American Prayers that come into play of whether you're, you know, trying to joke around with people instead of really being focused. And that kind of bit me in the butt a little. And right. I did not play as well as, definitely not as well as I could have, but mm. even as well as well as I would feel comfortable. And right. unfortunately, um, after speaking with the principal, um, they had decided not to have me back for a second. And, and having those very quick successes in the King and I in Latin, I, it was, it was detrimental to me, to my head, especially like, Oh no, this means I'll never work again. And, um, things go through your head pretty hard, especially when you respect the people that are there and we're hoping that maybe you get another chance, whatnot. Um, but a lot of people have been, most people probably have been through that situation and, uh, it teaches you a lot. It teaches you a lot about where to focus and then not to walk in somewhere and see familiar faces right away and and be social as opposed to uh, going in and making sure you dot your T's and cross your I's right. um, whenever you're first showing up. But with more years also, uh, in with more experience that people have as subs, mm-hmm. I feel like that is an easier mode to get into and it's an easier um, role to play. Right. And I was very young at that, uh, two months in, something like that. And yeah, so I learned a lot from that. And then, so then fast forward to about August and uh, King and I was still going. And then I got a call from, one of the contractors here in town, David Lai, and he said, would you be interested in having your own show? And that was Fiddler on the Roof. Oh, nice. And I was coming back from a wedding gig in Long Island, and I got the call, and I had to pull over, and I was just excited as anything. I called every person in my family in Germany because, thankfully, (laughs) it was 6 in the morning there. Right. (laughs) As it was the middle of the night. And that was it. That was great. And then... Uh, yeah, and then it was it was a great run of the show, and that kind of went from there. And what, sorry, what year did Fiddler start? That was uh, we started previews in fifteen, okay, and then in uh, went it went for the year of two thousand sixteen, and it was at the Broadway Theater, and the Broadway Theater, or I believe, had already signed a contract of sorts to bring Miss Saigon back the following January because they originally housed it and they have room for the helicopter. And so that was coming back. Oh, nice. Yeah. There, there's so much there in what you said. So the, the first thing is something that I've heard before, and that is, you know, actors audition for what they do in theater, but musicians don't. Musicians, and and that's that may be a surprise to 
professional musicians who've never played in a pit before, but they played an orchestra. You audition for a symphony right. orchestra, but you don't audition uh, for pits. So your your calling card is it's who you know, but all, you know who's played with you and who can vouch for you that you've done well. So there's two things that I would take from that. First of all, you you have to know what you're doing. You have to have prepared as a musician. So what was your life growing up uh, as, as a student? How, how often did you practice? You know, when did you get really serious about it? Ah, that's, that's a, that's a sketchy little question that I'm sure, (laughs) well, you know, I have colleagues that they'll say, oh, I, you know, practice six hours a day. And then I'll look at them and say, how or what, or, ah, um, so school, school pretty much came easy to me. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm, I'm a school person. I'm that nerdy type. Mm-hmm. Um, then it came to practicing, and not that it was easy, but I think for the most part, until I got to college, I kind of skirted along and did what was necessary. Uh, well, clearly it paid off, but uh, there were, I think it was in Dallas. In Dallas is uh, when reading became a big thing uh, to, to become a very strong reader. And so practicing was a thing. I would uh, practice maybe one, two hours a day. And then uh, also teaching that ungodly amount of lessons, then you have lesson chops and you can play everything that the kids are playing and some of it being very difficult and audition materials, stuff like that. But then you come home and are on the weekends, aside from playing gigs, you don't necessarily want to sit down and practice more, or at least I didn't. And um, then it came, but when I was going to UNT for my doctorate, which I did not finish, but uh, I was, I was teaching, I was a teaching fellow and I would get there very early in the morning and then would just have reading sessions and trios, quartets, duets. And then just the reading became a very, very strong component. So then fast forward to New York, this, uh, that there's an octet that meets every Thursday, a trombone octet at uh, now it meets at the union. David Chamberlain runs it and he has been in New York for, gosh, I think he was teaching on the Upper East Side. I'm just going to say 70s. I'm mm-hmm. going to go with that. Okay. And, uh, and he started this octet so long ago. And mm-hmm. anybody who has, uh, is playing in New York now, somehow they have I would say nearly everybody has funneled through this octet at one time or another. Mm. So, um, and, and that's where everybody plays together. People can hear each other. Um, they see how you read, they see how you match styles. They see what your, uh, what your input is on the music. And so a lot of Broadway players are, are principals in that group and, or that, when they get too busy, then somebody else becomes principal and then they kind of move on and maybe sometimes come back. And that's where I, for instance, got my start by having other people hear me. And actually, I was the sub of a sub when I first attended. Right. And um, now so is all it, these... I'm sorry, that octet, is it, all, is it all trombones or is it a mix? Yes, sir. All trombones. Nice. And once... Uh, I think maybe once every couple of months, David also likes to have a tuba euphonium choir. So then because Broadway has a lot of doubling, 
so on, so on, then the group splits up into four and four, four euphoniums, four tubas, and then the same people, and also to work on your doubles and to, to change it up a little, we play tuba euphonium choir music. Nice. Which is good too. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, as you said, you didn't practice like as much as some of your colleagues did. Mm-hmm. I have, I have taught for years based on that, like 15 minutes of practice where you have a plan and know what you're doing is better than an hour of aimless practice. So it's like you practice for an hour, that's better than four hours, you know, if you, if you do that, take it's that very, approach. very true. Um, yeah. And, and I think that's important to hear. Cause I think, I think sometimes, especially music teachers, uh, they, you know, we can kind of send that message to students that if you want to be a professional, you've got to basically have a full-time job as your practice. And that's not necessarily the case, you know, I mean, there, especially if you learn how to practice. Exactly. And my, my favorite saying is, or, you know, practice makes, and typically the answer would be mm-hmm. perfect, right? right? But practice makes permanent. Right. So when you're efficient with your practice, then and let's say you're playing for four hours, or let's say I'm playing for four hours, and then I hammer the same thing in each time, and then I'm getting more and more tired, and then I'm, I'm uh, maybe not being as efficient and then practicing with a bad habit. And then that's what I'm going to revert to. So I, I do now even, and during pandemic, it's been a little hard to be motivated to practice. Right. But uh, as a colleague of mine pointed out to me, um, I think last year, and he even said, hey, do you ever go back and, you know, play with the conductor videos of some of the old shows? And I thought, you know what? Why not? Right. Or to play along with the soundtrack and 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 that re-inspires and that um, I, th- I think hones in at a time when you're you're at a high of your um, of your practicing and playing time per day, and then it's easy to uh, lock in with those things again too. Right. Yeah, very good advice. I might have gotten off topic. I oh, no, 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 no. That's fine. <laughs> off topic is fine. <laughs> uh, but but no, you were actually pretty pretty close to on topic. So um, yeah, I've talked to a lot of multiple reed players on this show. People who've done you know like oboes, clarinets, and flutes for a book, and we and I always like talking about how they got to figure out their setup. And you know my my first impression when I hear that you play trombone for shows is like oh, I just hold your trombone the whole time, but You've probably had some setups with mutes and maybe have you ever had to like switch trombones? Have you ever done like tenor and bass trombone in a show or what are some crazy setups you've had? So I I love the little tray that goes on your stand in front of you. So you have your your cleaning materials and maybe, you know, maybe a book to read and all of those little gadgets. However, then there's the stand, and then your slide has to go in between, and then you end up knocking the heck out of it, <laughs> making noise. So there's one of those things, and also a mute stand. So trumpets, awesome. French horns, awesome. They can just reach forward. I will always be hitting it. So then where, uh, where do you place all of the mutes, whether you have five mutes at a time, and then when is it 
better for you to put it in with your left hand than with your right hand? Do you hold the bell up while you're trying to still play? Uh, are you balancing something on your knee or making sure that another mute is ready in between your knees while you're playing with another mute? So th those are definite things that, uh, especially when you're, let's say you're subbing, mm -hmm. uh, when you're watching for the first time and you're watching your principal uh, do all those things, I am always putting into my music, okay, check for mute here, do this here, because also your job as a sub is to, is to, is to sound exactly like the principal, mm -hmm. because if you're doing your job well, you don't sound like you, you sound like the person you are subbing for. Right. And so that's, it's very important for me to recreate all the motions that they go through. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, so that's definitely fortuitous. When it comes to different horns, at Fiddler, for instance, I did have a euphonium and I had a trombone. Mm -hmm. And luckily, there were just numbers that would have different instruments. But then I, in the ones that we would, I would do both, I would have to also for all the subs that uh, would come and read the book, start putting an asterisk somewhere early in the music, get ready to change to youth. Mm -hmm. And then it's uh, getting a little further toward that time and then reach for this. So on, so that, that you're mentally preparing yourself while you're playing that you're about to have this change because the change when it happens, horn down without breaking it, pick up the other one, make sure that your you know, mouthpiece is attached and your valves are working and that just that that it's it's seamless. Right. And when prepping for a show, it's just as important to practice those maneuvers because your body uh, does quirky things and uh, and the pit is gonna be small and you don't have that much room. Right. Um, I think uh, I was playing with uh, Big Apple Circus, and I was, it, it was a trombone euphonium chair, and then it was a tuba bass trombone chair. Now, stature-wise, I'm not very big. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure I can fit into my tuba case. <laughs> and um, so that switch in between those two, it was, it, you also have to be in shape for that. So, right. yeah, it is difficult, but it, I think the biggest part is to, is to practice all your movements, just like you practice all your notes, just like you practice all your sounds and registers and articulations. So it's, it's part of the gig. Right. You've used, you've used a term a couple of times. I just like to clarify. You talked about prepping for a show. So now, um, is prepping simply you practicing at home, or is there something else going on there? So for me, the way that I would define prepping and the 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 preparation that I go through is I will listen to the show, you know, Spotify or, you know, or buy the cast album. In mm -hmm. fact, I'd rather buy the cast album to support what not you're about to support me, hopefully. Right. And then you listen to, I, I listen to the cues of what's happening around and because what if I'm listening to the actual dialogue going on and then I completely miss an entrance? Mm -hmm. So I get used to the sounds that I'm hearing around uh, around when I play. Mm -hmm. And I would take the music and follow along there as well. And right. uh, just with my own part of it. Then uh, at the show, you would make a recording. So a, um, a, a sound recording. Right. Yeah, so, so not a video recording, or maybe even a video. And you can hear your principal doing everything that he's doing. Mm -hmm. And then while when you come home, you're going 
you're going to listen to it, you're going to play along with the music, and then last but not least, then the principal sends you a conductor video. And it's an, a great thing because you do have to look at the conductor, you have to look up from the music and not have your eyes glued to it. You have markings everywhere in your mu music that says, okay, slow down coming up or watch here or this. And then you can also see how this conductor is going to help you play in the right places or maybe make you be very aware of where you have to be strong and not wait for a cue because it's not gonna be there. He's busy doing other things. Right. So that's, it's, it's a lot of, it's basically like you go in and play the show maybe 20, 30 times before you ever play a show. Right. Because it can't sound like the first time when it is the first time. Right. Right. And uh, a downfall, uh, not, not downfall, but it's not uncommon that the first show is a better show than your second show. Right. Because on the first one, you're, you're excited and all that stuff. And the second one, you're like, oh, I've done this. Oh, crap. I missed something. <laughs> I think I think that's true on every level of theater. It's like uh, I, every community theater show I've done. It's like great opening night. That second night is, oh, I can't believe I'm making these mistakes tonight. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And something also uh, in in every pit that I've been a part of, whether I mean the high school, the high school productions around here, LaGuardia, so on. Still use uh, Broadway players, off mm -hmm. off Broadway players and stuff. It's um, you still see your colleagues, and then you have a sense of familiarity, and you also you you know what they can do, and you know how they sound, and all of a sudden you'll hear them like forget an entrance and just kind of space or or crack or chip, and it teaches me also that I'm still human and that that, that can happen. It's not the right. end of the world. And then I started kind of recording um, every single time I played the same show. It was like, okay, oh, good. I got all this. I got all this. Didn't chip this one. Cool. And then right then, oh, well, why did I miss this? I've never missed this before. Right. So for me also internally to stay focused, to stay driven, to stay um, super present in still enjoying the show, still laughing, smiling every time because I hear an audience member laugh that I keep track of exactly what notes, where they are. And it's just, it's such an, um, it's such an experience that you're, you're everything all at the same time, at least for me. Right. So uh, the energy in pits, that's, that's just the best thing. Yes. Yes. Uh, now there's a couple shows that you you told me that you did that we haven't talked about. You have Amelie, Amelie, uh, which Amelie with yeah. Philippa Sue, yeah. yeah. She left Hamilton to go do that. Yeah. When was that? That was um, it was right after Fiddler. I'd say uh, started in February of seventeen, I believe. Okay. And uh, and you know it's um, <clears throat> when you're coming out of a show, you hear colleagues that have been. But that have been playing on Broadway for, gosh, longer than I've even been here. And mm -hmm. say, oh, yeah, I'm going to this show next. I'm going to this show next. And a lot of that comes from years of subbing first and then years of having shows and then the contractors being familiar with you and you building up a, 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 an amount of colleagues that can vouch for you and that you're probably going to play with again. And so I was very nervous because, again, it was such a small 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 amount of time from the first time I ever went into sub to having my own show 
and uh, th there can be some ill feelings sometimes from people who've been subbing for a long time and have never had a show or, you know, the, the expediency and whatnot. So then the downfall of that or the downside can also be like, well, no one's going to call you again because mm -hmm. they don't know you. Right. And and then it's, uh, okay, well, this person had, hasn't had a show in a while, so on and so on. So fortunately, Kim Grigsby, she was an associate conductor at Fiddler at some point. And she called up and uh, said, hey, would you like to do Amelie? And one of my favorite movies and whimsical. Mm -hmm. And I was just thinking, how is this going to work? Because it was an eight-person pit. I was the only brass. Mm -hmm. There was uh, a woodwind, quintupler, all the instruments, mm -hmm. violin, viola chair, um, keys, guitar, bass, um, and then percussion? Uh, auxiliary percussion and me. Wow. I think that's about it. And Oh, and harp. Okay. So the I instrumentation was bizarre on, right. I, or, or was unusual. Right. But the score was gorgeous. And mm -hmm. um, there were new producers on the show. We unfortunately ended up closing or that we got our closing announcements the day after we started advertising. Wow. And so to keep a show alive is, uh, you know, of, of course, butts and seats. Right. But it's also how you market. And so it's, it's just so far outside the scope also of the actors on stage, the, the musicians in the pit. And unfortunately, I think we got uh, some, not everything worked in tandem. Yeah. And um, so we end up closing in May. So yeah. that was a very, very short run show. Right. And then, yep. And then it was a... Uh, some opportunities for subbing and then I had to go home to Germany for a bit because of family things and so then uh, I believe I heard somebody else speak was it Lewis I believe it was Lewis Krakow that um right I said once you leave and like let's say you go out on tour for a minute and then you come back it's harder to be called not only because oh are you in town but then there are there are no bad players really here right. so then it's, uh you got kind of got to get back into the rotation right and uh and i think you had one more show in there you had fiddler fiddler on the roof in yiddish yes so <laughs> that and i gotta say it, it, it was a small production mm -hmm. um but it was beautiful and incredible mm -hmm. and it was only supposed to run for six months and actually dan linden was the primary on this mm -hmm. and uh you know, thanks to dan I, I did get to sub a lot and it, it listening to it in yiddish and then try and hearing of course hearing german words i'm like wait i think i know what that was and uh, and just to see a different production, but actually a lot of the people or uh, several people that were in the broadway production and the aunt uh the 2016 revival were in this production as well. And ah, that's great too. New players also, because it started at, I believe it was the Jewish National Heritage Museum. Please don't quote me on that. <laughs> um, that's where it started. That's where the run was supposed to go. But then it went to stage 42. So right off Broadway and the, the pit musicians were um, carefully selected by I won't say well I would think Zalman uh, the conductor so it actually didn't have the same it it didn't go through the same channels that an on Broadway show would 
but then it ended up getting there and then start negotiating with uh, the Broadway League and Local 802 and then it becomes more that type. Right. So for playing this production of Fiddler and on the Roof in Yiddish, um, you mentioned previously that some of the pit musicians that she played with were very good, but they they weren't quite experienced with Broadway and didn't have the kind of the same social network. Yeah, it's um, spanning out of of uh, the tight knit community that Broadway pit musicians are. There are just fantastic musicians that. But, but that don't necessarily have an opportunity to play inside the Broadway pits. And this particular production also was very uh, klezmeresque. It, it, had the, it had less of the glitz and glamour of Broadway mm-hmm. and had a little bit more grit to it. Right. And um, I feel that, that they chose musicians that have experience with the sound that they wanted for this particular production. And that's also what made the show be as absolutely special as it was Mm -hmm. and then you know and then when it comes to to on broadway then then i would say other people were more um experienced in uh in playing a certain type of way you know kind of matching being very pristine let's Mm -hmm. say and then to have to come in and to growl a little Mm -hmm. and i I feel almost it's it's like the reverse the, re- the reverse prepping for Broadway, it's somebody who's so refined in their playing has to actually s- practice to get a little grit in there. So that was an, enjoy- an enjoyable thing to see when I would see, when I was uh, when I was subbing, when I would see different colleagues from other shows that, I, that were on Broadway. So nice. very cool. Okay. Um, so, you know, if you've got a show like Fiddler and, you know, you can kind of count on that for a few months to, you know, more than a year or whatever, um, I, I think that's, that's probably pretty good, but I'm, I'm sure as you found subbing in New York, that's not going to pay the bills, especially when you don't know when the next show is going to be. But, um, you know, you, you listed a lot of experiences that you've had and I mean, there's just a ton of things here, like, uh, principal trombone of the Brooklyn orchestra. Um, you played for radio city Christmas spectacular, uh, That's you, a wonderful as a, situation. As a mm-hmm. sub there, Empire Band, Horn Arranger and, and Player, Hudson Corral. I, I mean, that's, and you get about another couple of dozen things mm-hmm. there. So uh, I assume that, uh, and you've also talked about being a bartender. So let's just say what what is a non-COVID month like for for Andrea <laughs> in New York uh, when you don't when you don't have a full-time show? Okay. Um, and uh, so during my first show, I also made, so I don't want to say made the mistake, but I thought, hey, this is it. Cool. I made it. And this is one of these novice um, ideas that, mm-hmm. that I wish in time I would have been or even talked through it with people or just had the experience of not making really silly snap decisions uh, like I got the show, I was like, "Oh, I'm quitting bartending," right. and because, hey, look, ma, I made it. Um, what I think one of the most difficult things was, I I didn't see anybody, any people, didn't talk to any people until getting there to warm up for the show. Mm-hmm. So basically, my entire day was spent. Mm, what do I do? Hmm. 
and then you get there and then you're overexcited to see people and then it's uh it was time management that for me that was really hard at the time Mm -hmm. so after uh, i'd say probably right right about the middle of uh fiddler at the end of it um it's like i really want to go work again and also i think that's a matter of being so active and staying active uh as a pit musician and keeping your doubles going so that you're basically busy but if if i do the same thing every day then the performance is going to lack the efficiency is going to lack and i've always needed something to balance that out right. so a typical day would be well se- working seven days a week is is fun because yeah. you get to have on all your hats but uh let's say a couple of days bartending also depending on where it is it's a very nice little chunk of change in your wallet and it's uh you know it's it's insurance it's uh it's a little bit more of security i would definitely go with that now i'm sorry real quick how does bartending uh schedule fit with being a broadway player is it flexible uh I was working at Tavern on the Green before it shut down, and mm. fortunately, the, uh, the 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 people that work there, um, servers and bartenders alike, were mostly all artists. Mm. So, if I am in a jam, then somebody, friend-wise or colleague-wise, would say, "Hey, okay, I got you on this." Uh, even if it's last minute, I said, "Hey, I just got a show for tonight. Can you cover my shift?" Mm-hmm. And people are very accommodating. Because we're all trying to do the same thing. So somebody would want to help us and somebody will want to help and then you'll help somebody else. And then it comes to a point where I decided I'm just going to be the day, daytime bartender. Right. Get a call. Great. Out by four. I, you know, may, I'm already all, I am already wearing black. Right. Then if I have my horn with me, otherwise it's just a s- skip and a jump. And so it's, it's easily doable. Right. And then, like all these other groups that you've gotten in, uh, I assume you know they've kind of been in between shows. These are um, they're they're small orchestras. They don't uh, they, they don't consistently play. That's not a, a continuous output of concerts. Right. And so it's uh, again contractor who's heard your name. Who are you playing with? Uh, somebody, a player might have mentioned your name, and but then if you do a good job and they like you and then they'll continue to call you and there we are. Nice. And so that's getting into those, uh, into those situations. And then it just, it, it starts building the resume. The same thing with the uh, American symphony orchestra. First time was because I subbed somewhere else and, or I played somewhere else and then they need an extra player. And then I became part of the rotation. So right. Th- it's it's really crazy how it works, um, especially like you said when actors uh, on stage they have a manager they go to auditions they're being sent places and when somebody asks us oh so do you have management like mm, nah mm-hmm. uh, you just have to show up and always nail it right right nice um, yeah you talked about how you you know you you thought you had made it after that first show. And that got me thinking, um, I saw this on Instagram today. This is by a guy I follow. He does marketing tips, but also motivation. His name is Steven Miller. And his, his, his thing says, admit it. You got comfortable. 
You stop doing the things that got you here in the first place. That's why you can't grow. Yeah. That is that is true, I think, for everything. It's like, you know, you as soon as you feel like I've made it, well, nobody nobody does that. You know, it's like I am I'm a big film music fan. And um I love you know, music of John Williams. Every interview he's ever done, he he always talks about how he doesn't even watch the films, you know, when when they come out. Goes he spent the time with his film, he did that job. It's great if it's successful, but he's got the next project to do and he's got to focus on that. And he doesn't ever mm-hmm. like pause to think about the fact that everyone regards him as possibly the greatest film composer of all time. That's not even a consideration. He might he might think of that when, you know, down the road, hopefully a long way, he'll, he's sure. on his deathbed. Sure. But until then, right. he's working and working and mm-hmm. working. And it's like that's a mindset. It's almost hard to imagine achieving that because we want to celebrate those moments <laughs> of course and right. uh, exactly in the quote you read and in what you're saying it's and it is important to slow down once in a while and say hey you know i did good mm-hmm. um and uh I, I believe it was a bass player that i was talking to in at fiddler and he communicated how he got started on Broadway and it was kind of quick and so and he had like two three shows in a row and then the phone stopped calling uh, the phone stopped ringing for about five years five six years and Mm -hmm. nothing and so then of course and it is very difficult to not get caught in your head about oh no what did I do who did I make mad and sometimes it's not that so during COVID, during mm-hmm. pandemic, prepare like you are preparing for something or play every day with the intention of having somewhere to be. Mm-hmm. And it's been, it's hard to do that for a year, right. especially now in COVID. Right. But, uh, but then you start playing and then, I mean, it, it is doable. And so, yes, uh, to be complacent and, then only be involved in musical theater. Oh, that's the other thing with pit players. That's so cool that they're amazingly functional. They're amazingly good at their jobs. Uh, while it's still a job, and maybe newer people to Broadway, they're still very bushy-eyed and or, or big-eyed, bushy-tailed, so and so on. It's very exciting right. that it does become a job, and mm-hmm. we do have to. I have to dial back the excitement. Um, and treat it as something that is uh, th- that's important, but it's also it is a job. So you have to make sure that you get your sleep for your job, that you still prep for your job, you prep for meetings, just like anybody else would. And then the great part about also being in a pit is that you do get to sub out mm-hmm. because um, you have to give other people work, and mm-hmm. it's all this wonderful um, wheel that keeps spinning. And then you still get to go out and play other, uh, other events or other projects. Now, not right. other Broadway shows, but um, your own projects. And right. You can become really creative, and you can become very involved and stay relevant and involved in the entire scene. Right. I assume it's just got to get that right balance. Like you can't probably can't sub it out for a couple of months, but you can probably sub it out for a few days here and there. So sure. Uh, I believe it's uh, it's uh, as long as you go 50 percent of 
I think 50% of the shows you have to make. Nice. And and you're giving work, which is great. Nice. Okay. Um, I think, you know, of all the things that I wanted to, wanted to ask, the one thing that I haven't asked yet is how has COVID affected you as far as working? Mm. So fortunately, um, I've, I've always, I've always taught trombone, tuba, euphonium, all the doubles, mm -hmm. and I was able to retain a few students. So that started on Zoom and that, uh, that also kept me motivated. Mm -hmm. But then when the hospitality industry goes under and then, and, and music or music and hospitality, depending on which way the month flies, uh, it's, it's really hard to look forward to things. Mm -hmm. um, th the fortunate part is you do things that you wouldn't have thought to do before. So actually, Chaim Abitsur, who is an associate professor at Queens College in Manhattan and the Hart School up in Connecticut, he and I have been working on a project slowly tinkering, and we have now come out with a quartet, and Colin Williams, who's the principal trombone in the New York Phil, and then his wife, Nikki Abisi, who has her, she's got some Broadway credits subbing as well, and she has or orchestral credits before she came up with Colin for, the New for his New York gig, and we're now, we've come together and uh, to make a quartet to start recording and to try to stay inspirational for music programs, and then between the four of us, I believe we have every facet of uh, whether it's college teaching and then symphony playing and then commercial playing and then Broadway playing. And we're going to involve all those things in our shows. Right. So that's one thing that has been something to look forward to and something that's going to evolve into somehow. Well, that's the plan. Right. <laughs> yeah. To somehow... Uh, stay in pit life to stay in whether it's talking about it or making shows about it and staying in pit life and staying in the music life and trying to keep that alive until it's possible to do these things again. Right. And, uh, yeah. Well, great. Yeah. And, uh, hopefully, I mean, I, I read that things are tentatively opening up. So, you know, hopefully it's, it'll be, I know it'll be a gradual process, but hopefully, you and all of your colleagues will get back to work soon. I think uh, it was last week that I got my first gig email. Mm. And and I, I didn't really know what to do. Like I, I got, I got, my eyes got big, and then I got nervous, and I was like, wait, really? Is it happening? Mm -hmm. It's almost like, oh, my gosh, I this. And, yeah, so it's, it'll be nice to get back into that groove mm -hmm. and hopefully, you know, some of the productions that were canceled last year or just some things that I was hoping to be a part of that I was, that I was supposed to be a part of that. I hope those things pick back up and that they come to fruition and end up on Broadway, hopefully soon as opposed to later. But I think uh, the insecurity of how to move forward right now and with what stops and restarts and has to be put off. It's a, it's a nerve wracking time. Nice. Yeah. Well, again, hopefully all is going to be getting better soon. So, um, definitely. Is there anything you'd like to share where people can follow you if they want to follow you or, or any projects that you've, that you've been a part of that you want to share? 
Um, so uh, the Phoenix project that we have with the quartet coming up, um, we're going to have some streaming concerts, but that's uh, still a little bit further in the future. hasn't been hasn't been mapped out precisely. Um, Where can they find the, that? I'm sorry. Um, it's on Facebook. Uh, Andrea Newman, Newman like the microphone, and uh, I also have Instagram. However, for whatever reason. Instagram felt like I was underage during the summer and erased my accounts. Okay. And it's it, uh, they blocked me both from Facebook and Instagram, and I kept writing saying, uh, "There's there are no children even in any of my pictures, and it's puppy dogs and sunshine and trombone, and there you go." Right. And uh, yes, yeah, so. That's kind of Instagram an annoying said, compliment, isn't it? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, little bit, little bit, and so basically everything that I had on Instagram, all. You know, over the years of 2,000 people that I was able to be in touch with is now probably down to about 400 trying to build that back up again. But okay. uh, otherwise, Instagram is going to be Andrea Newman TRB. Okay. So I'm trying to build that back up again. Okay, good. Thank you for taking time to talk about playing in New York today and all of your all of your experiences. Well, thank you, David, so much for having me. And um, I, it, it's 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 a little nerve wracking to be. It's to have your words out there. Right. However, uh, it's also a story to tell. And right. thank you for letting me tell mine. And that wraps up episode number 40. Um, just once again, I just want to say uh, I do apologize that uh, I wasn't able to make the sound quality any better than it was for this episode. Uh, sometimes it's really good. This was just a case where it, it, it just wasn't something that uh, with my limited equipment that I was able to do anything with, but I do appreciate Andrea offering her time and especially just giving us uh, just the wonderful stories of her life and career on Broadway and wish her the best as Broadway will hopefully within a few months start to open up and she can get back to the pit. As a reminder, if you want to follow what's coming up next, be sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Life in the Pit Pod. You can follow me on Instagram at David Lane Music or Twitter and Facebook at David M. Lane Music. And as always, I want to give a special thank you to Mark Perolo for his cover art and to Bill Cisna for providing the introduction to this podcast. The theme music is composed and performed by David Lane. You can find out more about the podcast, leave feedback or donation at davidlanemusic.com slash podcast. Please rate and review on the Apple Podcast app and share with your friends. Thank you for listening.